The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, Kinky Connections, and Kinky Education. We're kinky, done differently. what women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self. With questions asked by a guy. And now here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to the show. The other day, I got a message on Instagram from one of our former guests. Loving your guest list, she said. And as I went back and looked at that list, I realized just what an amazing journey this has been. And after this week, after booking one guest from London and another from Las Vegas, both of whom found the show and contacted me, I thought to myself, maybe we've really struck a chord. In last week's show and in this week's show, we're hosting a pair of people who have been on my list since day one of people I most wanted to have on the show. Last week, we were joined by Lady Vi, whose story of adventure and authenticity is one that I absolutely love. And this week, we bring you someone who calls themselves an authenticity expert who happens to live a short trip up the road from me, but whose influence reaches far around the world as one of the most in-demand content producers and dominas in the industry. Professional man-eater, internationally renowned dominatrix, producer of videos that melt the minds of men, educator and sex worker activist. Alexandra Snow is a fetish personality whose work encompasses a wide array of media from magazine publications, podcasts, documentaries, as well as starring and producing over 2,500 videos. As a renowned professional dominatrix, she has a wealth of knowledge and experience and has taken that to new heights as an online industry leader creating authentic experiences via in-person sessions, phone, and webcam for over a decade with individuals, couples, and more across the gender and orientation spectrum. She is a kink educator, world-class dungeon owner, sex worker activist, and business mentor. Everyone who meets her says that she is a force of nature with an indomitable spirit who seeks to empower and inspire others to lead authentic lives. She strives to break down stigmas, stereotypes, and cultivate connection through kink. 
She is the founder of The Wicked Collective, an all-female BDSM studio in Columbus, Ohio. She's also an avid burner, travel junkie, wild animal handler, occasional mermaid, extreme adventurer, scuba diver, and soon to be a private pilot. Goddess Alexandra Snow on what women and other wonderful humans want. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time you ever saw a professionally taken picture of you and your reaction to it. Ooh, that's actually a really good question. So I actually started my modeling like journey as a, uh, as a hand model when I was in my, uh, my mid teens. And the very first shoot I ever did was like, it was a jewelry. <clears throat> and I remember going, do my hands actually look that good? I don't know why somebody's paying me for this, but okay. And I remember afterwards, like getting to look at the photos and stuff and being like, huh, okay. I didn't even know that people really did that. And like, it didn't really ever occur to me that people ever got, you know, like that those were real people's hands in those photos. I guess probably never thought about it at all. I don't think I ever actually saw pictures of like my own face and stuff until, I don't know, probably 18 or 19. Yeah. Somewhere in there. And, um, I don't know. I, the, I think the first time when I saw pictures of myself, I was like, I don't know if I like the lighting in that. Does this photographer know what the fuck they're doing? But you know, that might just be the, um, the, critic in me that has become very hard on myself for my own lighting and stuff over time. I never, I've never like had any like dysphoria about how I look or any of those things. So. First time you ever realized that your nerdish presence made way for a powerful presence. Um, is there a difference? Not necessarily, but I think some would think that sometimes a nerdish presence may be smart, withdrawn, while your presence is one that radiates power. I would say maybe um, coming into my own as um, as a performer and as a um, as I'm, I'm an ambivert. I guess what you're saying is like a nerdish presence is more like an introverted presence, you know, um, where um, as a performer, you have kind of extroverted presence. And as a person who's an ambivert, I, I feel like I kind of have both. Um, I didn't understand my own power as a female dominant until I was probably in my my mid like early, early to mid twenties, I'd actually was, had been a pro dom for a little while and still didn't really understand my own power. It was, it was, you know, a number of years later, but believe it or not, you said, so and you say like nerdish things. It's like, I, I fancy myself a, a pretty hardcore geek. Um, and it's only been in recent years that I have been outspoken about having, you know, being a geek, because it was one of those things that really wasn't synonymous with like the old style way of, of um, advertising yourself as a dom. So, you know, these things come full circle, I guess. The first time you realized that engineering wasn't for you and you had a different path. Um, oh, this is kind of a sticky, a sticky answer, but you know, after doing a documentary, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty open about it. Um, so I actually graduated high school at 16 and, um, I had, 
I had gotten a preliminary scholarship to MIT. Um, and anybody who's watched my documentary and I really has some, it's not been released to the public um, for streaming yet. So it's a small handful. Know that I have a very tumultuous relationship with my mother. Um, and at the time, my mother was actually in active addiction and um, I was no longer living with her. Well, when you get a scholarship to an Ivy League school, uh, at least back in the day, they didn't really have provisions for someone being um, an emancipated minor, which is what I was. So they contacted my mother and they said, uh, you know, um, we want you need your signature for the scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I told her, well, go pound sand. Fuck you. I'm not going to do that. Um, I'll just wait until I'm 18 and then I can sign it myself. Right. So the, the period between uh, 16 and 18 is kind of when I decided that uh, I'd I would wait to go into genetic engineering, which is what I had my scholarship for. And honestly, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because um, I don't think I would love my life uh, even a fraction as much um, if I was in engineering as I do now. First time you ever picked up an implement of pain and your emotions holding it. Well, that's a loaded question because I've been riding horses since I was four or five. So um, I just want an implement of pain and then using it to, with the intent to use it on a person. I'm almost curious to hear the story of what you felt like being in control of that powerful horse underneath you and transitioning it to a human. Um. So my, my grandmother was one of the last people in Texas at the time who was still gentling Mustangs. And my relationship with animals has always been that um, it's not being in control of them. It's um, entering into a partnership with them. Right. Nice. So so I've never, I've never been a person to think, oh, I'm in control of this animal. In fact, um, what I'm trying to do is communicate in its language so that um, we have a rapport and a bond. Right. So I don't know. I never really saw any of those implements as being implements of pain. And I don't know. My, my very first girlfriend um, at 16 was a bit of a, a spanking fetishist. And um, I'm not a sadist by nature. At least I'm not a physical sadist by nature. I'm a psychological sadist. She would, you know, bring in a cutting board and would ask me to, to spank her. And I remember looking at being like, I feel like this is a better thing as a, as a, as a paddle than it is as a cutting board. Cause who the fuck ever uses this thing to cut cheese? So that was probably my first thought. <laughs> first time you looked yourself in the mirror and realized that you had reached the authenticity that you dreamed of. Um, I don't know that I'm still, that I'm, I'm there yet. I, I, I continue to dream of an authenticity I still haven't reached. And I feel like I am my most authentic self year after year. I, I continue to, to grow into myself and um, grow into, you know, my, my enormous dreams and my huge aspirations and wanting to, um, you know, to elevate our industry and, and all of those things. So uh, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. When we return on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, we will talk a little bit more about the fetish personality that is Alexandra Snow when we return. Have you ever wanted to try something a little kinky in the bedroom but had no idea where to start? Or maybe your partner just told you they're into water sports. No, not the jet ski kind. And you really want to fulfill their fantasy, but you're nervous. 
that's totally normal. I'm Kate Sloan. I'm a sex journalist who's talked about kink in magazines like Cosmo, Playboy, and Glamour, and on my podcast, The Dildorks. My new book, 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, is a guide to some of the hottest and best-known kinks out there, from age play to zapping and everything in between. Each section offers three suggestions for ways you can try out your new interest with a partner or even by yourself. Curious? Order your copy now at 101kinkythings.com and start learning new things about your sexuality. This is Alicia Zadig, author of the new book, Yes, Mistress. I'm also Mistress Alicia, a leading dominatrix and BDSM expert. My book, Yes, Mistress, takes you on a provocative, eye-opening journey into the erotic worlds of kink, fetish, and female domination. Join me for a fascinating conversation. Male submission is more common than you think and more rewarding than you can ever imagine. Yes, Mistress, now available on Kindle, and you can order your copy at yesmistress.com. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. And now back to this episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Welcome back to the show where we're joined by, I love how you put this as your flashy bio, professional man-eater, internationally renowned dominatrix, producer of videos that melt the minds of men, educator, and sex worker activist, Alexandra Snow. I mean, listen, you know, I still actually have a marketing degree, right? So, you know, it comes in handy sometimes. I can see that at the start of a trailer with those 3d letters just coming right towards you that almost uh, almost like they used to do in the uh, in the x factor when you had that uh, great voice going professional manita <laughs> <laughs> i mean so, i guess the shoe fits <laughs> <laughs> so when did you find yourself established as a fetish personality at what age was that um i started in in sex work at um at 18 mm-hmm. so you know i i have literally been been a sex worker my entire adult life i don't know that i would have considered myself a fetish personality until much later when there was no good catch-all term for everything that i did um so i don't know probably somewhere in my late, late twenties. Was there a certain thing that led you to go into sex work or was it something within your personality that said, this is a good fit for me? Um, 
I had always had a, a, a fondness and a respect for, um, for dance and, you know, the, the notion of exotic dance had, had always really fascinated me. And so actually that was my, my beginning in, in sex work was a, was a dancer. And I had done lots of other classical dance, including belly dance. So I think that was the, you know, that was kind of my in, um, but, and, you know, like there's a famous story of me having one of like, um, um, an, an amateur night and in basically doing a belly dance routine with no shoes and everything else. But anyway, I knew that I really knew that sex work was for me. It was probably several months into my, my dancing career and a client had come into the, into the club and, um, and the club that I worked at was a, was a non-nude club or at least it was a, there was a no, no nudity for lap dances. So there was like nudity on stage, but everything else was fully clothed. Mm-hmm. And for me, that kind of fit with my aesthetic. Like the, um, you know, the stages were, were very elevated up like pedestals. And I was like, yeah, that feels about right. But I remember having a guy come in and, um, and he paid me something that was kind of ridiculous for me at the time. It was like several hundred dollars to kick him in the balls. And, um, I thought, all right, sure. Um, and I, you know, I was like kind of doing the, you know, low level negotiations and stuff. And it's like, okay, well, I understand like there's a risk of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, no, listen to me, listen to me. I just really want you to, to crank back. And I want you to, to kick me as hard as you can. I want you to think of the last person who's pissed you off or everyone who's ever pissed you off. And I really want you to like, take it out on me. And so I thought, oh, fuck, why not? You're paying me for it. Right. And I did, and he crumpled over and I thought he was gonna cry. And for a minute there, I had this like huge pang of empathy, like, oh gosh, what have I done? And he like looks up at me and he's got tears in his eyes. And he was like, thank you, thank you. It's the best one I've ever had. And he like crawls over, kisses my feet and then proceeds to give me more money. And I thought, fuck, I'm in, I'm in. This is whatever this is, I am drunk on all of it. So that was it. Amazing. In those early days performing, what was the feeling you had stepping out on stage? Was it the performer within you just enjoying the presence there? Or was it the aura that you were putting to the outside world in front of you that gave you the high? Um, well, so I, I have always been a theater kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did theater. I mean, I'm, I'm still a theater kid. I just now get to write <laughs> my own plays. Um, and there's a phenomenon that happened for me when I go on stage, whether I was dancing or whether I was, I was acting where the entire rest of the world melted away. I couldn't have cared if there were five people in the audience or 5,000 people in the audience, right? To me, like the lights are on and, I, you know, I perform for myself. I would dance for myself. It's a little bit the way that I still do it, where um, I am connecting with some, some, you know, deep muse in myself that, uh, you know, that, that feels close to this creative source. And the fact that there is positive reinforcement of, you know, people liking what I do is great, but not really the feeling that drives me. It's more something deep within myself. Has this journey been what you've expected it to be, or has it been better? I mean, are, are, are any journeys what we expect them to be? If we could predict the journeys when we're younger, we you know we wind up taking the same um, the same paths and forks mm. in the road, right? Um, but certainly, my my journey has been amazing. 
I, I have made plenty of mistakes in my journey and learned a lot of things, but I wouldn't change any of them for the world. I have no regrets. You love to travel and have that adventure. When did that start in you? Oh, um, I was, I've always been obsessed with travel. And uh, when, when I first started in sex work, I was, I had also gotten involved in my, my now, um, you know, my fortunately now ended uh, marriage and my marriage was not great. And my ex had promised me through that we would, that we would travel. And that was kind of the, the lead in on it. And we never did. And so when we separated, well, I should say when I left, um, I guess it's going on seven years ago, I had only ever been to like Canada, right? I'd never traveled. And, and I'm a person who would, who would watch National Geographic religiously. And I would see some of my sex worker friends traveling, um, specifically uh, Ciara Lynch was a, is one of, my, one of my closest friends. And I would watch her gallivanting across the world. And I thought, well, why am I not doing that? That's really what I want to do. How, how do I build my life like that? And um, I went on my first backpacking trip to, to, to Europe, um, maybe a couple months after this, uh, this decision. And then shortly after that, I decided I would move to Paris because, you know, I, I, if you're going to do something, go big or go home. And uh, since, since that date, I have done somewhere in the ballpark of like 28 countries. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, uh, I have no intention of stopping anytime soon. What has been the one that was on your bucket list that you've already checked off? Iceland. I can't wait to go back. I Iceland, Iceland and New Zealand are probably up there as my, like inside my top three. Um, it's just being unbelievably beautiful, like, like disgustingly beautiful, after, after spending two weeks in, in New Zealand, you're kind of like going over, you know, another, another rolling hill, another rolling hill, and there's another beautiful vista. And you're like, oh, fine. Oh my God. It's so beautiful. Ugh. And you know, I don't know. That's uh, that's just how I like that. I I'm, I'm always kind of halfway out to moving to New Zealand about, you know, every couple of months, I, I look again as to what that would cost and how I would do it. Having in a previous life been the unofficial American announcer for Aotearoa Roller Derby, which is the New Zealand women's roller derby team. That's awesome. I I will say good on you for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Why Iceland? Um, uh, I mean, originally it was because I really love Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I... I'm also a study of, of film and, um, and I pay a lot of attention to locations and, you know, like how, how set designs are done and how location design is done. And so when I would see something beautiful in a movie, I'm, I'm the person who will like stop pause and then go look up exactly where it is. And I will, and I will even drop a pin on a map, like in my maps, on my Google maps, and then plan to tr- a trip to go visit that place because I want to see kind of silly, like I want to see what it looks like from my eyes, not just through the camera's lens and see how it compares. This leads beautifully into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the fact that your content, whether it be a still picture or a video is filled with the aesthetic of absolute class and beauty. Thank you. I'm sure that's by design. 
a little but bit. <laughs> what did it take to get you there? I, I don't know. As long as I can remember, my friends have always called me a classy weirdo. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just kind of, I've just kind of leaned into that. Um, I get more weird, trust me. And this is like the, the top level surface. But um, I, I always had this like image of, of wanting to have this kind of classy, powerful, um, but not quite attainable, you know, for the viewers kind of aesthetic. And the older I got, the, the more real that became in my life. And so the easier and easier it was, but it's also, I think just my, my individual style is like, I, I just, I, I like things to look a certain way. I like them to look glossy and rich. You know, I'm like, um, when I first started with my videos, I really had no idea what I was doing with regards to lighting. And, um, over the years, the more that I've learned and the more that I've been able to like understand how to shape light and how to, you know, build, build scenes and, you know, build tension and stuff, which is not the easiest thing to do in POV videos. I'm not going to tell you, um, <laughs> the, the better and better that's gotten. Is it difficult to be the representation of perfection for so many men? Gosh, perfection sounds like a, sounds like an, uh, not a category. I think I, I, I would feel comfortable with. Well, you talked about unattainable and you talked about that level of personality and energy mm. where people let's face it, are in awe of you. When I was younger, it was a lot more ego. And I probably would have been like, oh, yes, of course, I'm perfect. Huh. You know, <laughs> when you, when you, I think, drink a little bit of your own Kool-Aid too much. Um, now, I, I think I'm far from perfect, but I no longer give a shit really what people think of me. And, mm. um, and so when I'm more possessed by the standards which I want to do things or the things like the, the changes I want to make in the world or, or, you know, the fact that I inspire people, I'm, I'm not inspiring people because I feed off of their approval. I'm just, I feel like I might inspire people because I live a life where I, I really know who I am and I'm not afraid to, you know, to, I, I don't let life happen to me. I have, um, I, I happen to life. Right. And I think maybe that's, that's where it comes from, but really what I want to do is I want to inspire people to, to be their own, you know, version of that. Um, and I don't really like being on the pedestal. It's a place where, you know, you really can't make very many mistakes and it's very easy to be shot down off of. In your role as a dominatrix, you talked about the love of psychological sadism. Define that for me psychological sadism is it's the cat and mouse game where the person that you're playing with or persons you're playing with um, are only seeing essentially what's right there in front of them. And you're thinking four or five, six steps ahead of them. Mm -hmm. And so by the time those steps roll around, um, they begin to catch on that it's all been a carefully concocted plan, right? And that everything is devised to put, to pit, usually to pit someone against themselves a bit. For me, my interest in psychological domination and, you know, sadism to, to an extent comes from the fact that most people need to be shaken out of their comfort zone. And if you, if you don't push them out of their comfort zone, they don't really grow. And that's my, uh, I think that's my, my job is to help people find the impetus for growth, whether it's painful or not. And growth usually is very painful. It's interesting that 
these last two answers came back to back as they did because my personal comfort zone is the, okay, am I doing everything for everybody right? Am I making the right decisions? <laughs> am I? And I, I actually mentioned it on both FET and Facebook today is it took me watching a comedy with Ryan Reynolds uh, and Antonio Banderas that's on Netflix right now, or, not, or HBO Max called The Hangman's Bodyguard's Girlfriend something something. Okay. And there was a therapist in there that said to Ryan Reynolds' character, your validation need comes from the fact that you probably couldn't make your dad happy. Yep. That's called, it's your, it's your attachment, uh, attachment trauma. Now I've been through 20 years of therapy and it took a comedy for somebody to say that to me. I mean, and I went, yep. Honestly, when it like, when it comes to, to attachment theory, that wasn't really well preached to us or like, well, well communicated. And so when you encounter it, like in a movie or in like a random ass meme that came across Facebook and it hits you really hard, um, that's, that's kind of powerful. I agree. Um, it can also really throw you for a loop too, because it sets you on this path of questioning, okay, well, how many other things did I do in my life that it was because of my dad and this relationship I have with my dad? No, oh God, who am I now? But you know, it's normal. Everybody goes through that. I heard in another interview that you did and with the different looks that you portray, I can totally see this. You are pretty much the ultimate look of a villain. <laughs> And you had mentioned in this other interview that you enjoy playing that role. Sure. How much fun is it? I mean, playing the villain is great. I don't know if you, you know, if anyone's ever paid attention to this, but the, the villain is always a much more complex character than the hero, right? The villain has a deep backstory and the villain has, you know, like these, these, these twists and turns to their psyche. Whereas the hero is just, you know, usually the epitome of good, or sometimes they're a little bit tortured or whatever, but the villain gives, has permission to do things outside of the norm. The villain has permission to, you know, explore dark places and, you know, pit the hero against themselves or against the environment or any of those things. And so I, I love that. I, I also think that being the villain gives, um, or at least especially playing the villain in, in my films, um, gives the viewer a chance chance to feel attracted to the villain, which they would otherwise maybe feel bad about doing in real life, right? Because mm -hmm. the villain is usually a personification of some kind of passion, of, of anger, or vengeance, or rage, or, you know, or seduction or whatever. And, um, you know, it's, it's fucking it's hot as hell. That and um, the costumes are way better. <laughs> they just are. Do you have a favorite villain in your life? I'm a big fan of um of of Hella as a as a villain archetype. Um and especially the, the like the Hella from um from the comics, which is very fairly also fairly deep and complex. Um I'm a big fan of comic books, like I said, pretty nerdy. And I also like um I also really like the Dark Phoenix saga. And, you know, Jean Grey as the villain, well, actually as the Dark Phoenix um, and, you know, various, various other ones. I, before that, Maleficent probably, mm -hmm. you know, but that's pretty, you know, characteristic, I suppose. 
some pretty badass women there. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and as I've been known to say, badass is the new beautiful for me. So I just think that's amazing. Thanks. I try to live up to that. <laughs> when we come back on what women and other wonderful humans want, we're going to talk a little bit about the female mystique and why that is so important to Alexandra Snow when we return. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about my friends at Lotus Blooms. Lotus Blooms is an adult shop with a different kind of feel. You'll notice the difference when you walk into the warm, welcoming shop where everyone is welcome and celebrated. They offer a beautiful collection of size-inclusive lingerie and steel bone corsets, and their staff loves helping folks find something they feel amazing in. They also carry a curated collection of body-safe sex toys and vibrators, impact toys, and restraints. And their incredible staff are trained as educators, and they look forward to helping you explore your pleasure. Visit them in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., or shop online at www.lotusblooms.com. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works, real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. This is Tanya Tate. And have you listened to my podcast? Tanya Tate presents MILFs Making Money. I share a whole lot of positivity, tips and tools on how myself and other women in the adult industry make money on premium social media platforms. If you want to hear me interview many different guests, then get yourself over there, milfsmakingmoney.com. And you can also search my name, MILFs Making Money, on all of your usual podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed listening to What Women Want podcast, make sure you get yourself over and subscribe to my podcast, MILFsMakingMoney.com. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please... Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Welcome back to the show, joined by Alexandra Snow. And when you have developed your businesses, you have gone in a very, very definite direction with the all-female dungeon and an all-female production staff. In this world where men seem to think they own everything and women should, what made you go in those directions? 
Well, um, yeah, that's a, that's a several part answer. When it came to the dungeon, um, uh, previously my ex-husband was, was very involved in the old studio and, uh, and it led to some very unethical things happening that I didn't know about. And so when I left, I was like, I will never do any of that again. If, uh, I, I think that any, any, Anything that's that's con, you know constructed by sex workers should be run by sex workers. If it's an impacting sex workers, you know nothing about us without us sort of thing. And uh, it would it made sense to just start from the ground floor up. Let's make it all women. Um, and when it came to my production, um, again, like we, I think we were talking a little bit about the male gaze earlier, is that uh, you know film and porn both are heavily male dominated fields at least the production aspects of them and as such the films and stuff tend to be created with the male gaze porn is terrible about being created for the male gaze and so i thought well how do i fix that i mean also men aren't the only people who watch porn but yet the majority of men is, majority of porn is made for men so let's even the plane a little bit and let's uh let's only have people who have who don't have a male gaze who are influencing the things that we make and it's uh, worked out great also having all female production staff means that there literally has been no model ever that has come to work with me who didn't have an amazing experience. Like mm -hmm. we just, we, we don't ever make anybody feel uncomfortable. You know, we talk about, um, if we talk about our feelings and stuff, we respect everybody's boundaries and we tend to have great friendships afterwards, which has not really been the case with male producers. Understood. And I will not take offense having been a TV producer for 35 <laughs> years. But I understand, and we talked a little bit about it uh, off microphone during the break, that I have this vision, and I think it goes for porn as well, is you have men who basically have a starting point and a finishing point. And I think we can kind of figure out what the finishing point is. When it comes to women, I think there is the essence of what the story is, and then the journey to get to wherever the story is going, rather than just a straight line. I, I would agree with that. Um, I think that, you know, we, we always know that like women are, um, are more subjective thinkers, and men are more objective thinkers traditionally, um, or that you know, men are more goal oriented, whereas women are, are more situation or environment oriented. Um, I think a lot of it is that, um, men have a tendency, uh, to, to disregard anything that is, that is to the sides of, of their path. Right. Whereas women realize that a, um, that the most efficient or, you know, or the best path from a, from a problem to a solution may not be straight. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, it, it makes sense to take in your, you know, take in your surroundings, look at the things you're doing. I mean, like problem solving for me, looks a lot like that. And I have been fairly, I'm a, I'm a fairly, um, masculine type of personality, at least since, um, I don't really necessarily understand why people call me that, but I will just say, yes, I guess it is. Um, but even I don't approach problems from a, a straight linear way, you know, like I'm going to look at them and I'm going to make a matrix of, uh, of various different solutions and consider each one individually. So I agree with you. Do you think that people bring on this masculine tendency to say it's equal to power because you have a very strong presence 
from the first time I heard you, from the first time <laughs> I saw you, that has authority there. And I'm just wondering if people are somehow mixing this up with the male perspective versus the female perspective. And I've always seen that females are actually, in actuality, the most confident and powerful people on their own. Well, I mean, um, I, I would say that a lot of men, um, especially men of, of um, you know, of an earlier generation, weren't exposed to as many different types of gender roles. Right. So, you know, gendered was always binary. It's, you know, it's been like women are passive, men are, um, you know, men are active, like the man is the protector. He's the one who's in control. And the woman is, you know, is not blah, 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 blah. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't think honestly, any of those things have fuck all to do with gender. I think that's mm -hmm. a, that's a cultural thing, um, which is why, you know, now we have all these various different variations of gender and, you know, various variations of like what it means to have masculine or feminine or are completely androgynous tendon, you know, characteristics or tendencies at all. Right. So, um, yeah, I would say that probably a lot of men associate power and straightforwardness and, you know, logic and things like that as a, as a masculine thing when scientifically there's really no, no framework for it at all. Um, I don't know, like on the, on actually on the subject of gender, when I first started um, uh, in on my journey of knowing I was a, a dominant woman was um, I started to see a, a therapist at Johns Hopkins as I thought I was having a gender crisis. Hmm. Um, I don't know, like it's not so much anymore, but there, but back in, back in the day, there was a, a mandatory amount of, um, of therapy you had to do in order to go through transition for as a trans person, right? Mm -hmm. And this doctor was one of the few that would do it. And so I thought maybe I identify as trans. I don't know. Like people say I have these masculine characteristics, but I don't feel bad about my body. Actually, I don't really feel gendered really at all with my, with my body. I'm like super feminine traits, but like masculine characteristics, blah, blah, blah. And I go in there and I pour my heart out to this guy and I was like, something wrong with me, you know, like I'm like, I I'm attracted to, to women. I'm also kind of attracted to men, but not all men. And, you know, like I feel, I just feel very, you know, blah, 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 very, very dominant characteristics. And he goes, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, you're just rare, like dominant women are not as common uh, and you really don't have any role models for it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you haven't, haven't had a chance to, to see, basically see culturally that outside the box. Um, yes, but, um, I think you, your, your gender is you, you are your own gender. Don't, don't, don't think about it too much. And I thought, okay, that was it. I walked out, never saw him again. And, um, <laughs> that was kind of the end, the end of the entire journey. I was like, cool. And isn't it beautiful that today we have this beautiful spectrum that is breaking down the stigmas and the stereotypes, which is something that you love to do. <laughs> could you have ever imagined a day like this where we are so openly talking about it oh yeah i could totally i, I could totally imagine that day um you know like i'm i'm native american so um i grew up with you know the the idea of two-spirit pretty you know pretty early and easily um it was only like uh, more common culture like outside outside of uh, my my ethnicity that I was like, well, you guys seem to be taking this way too seriously, right? Like, 
it seemed, I, I didn't understand that, that, that group thing. So the way we are now, I still think has lots and lots and lots of room to grow. And I imagine that day. It's going to be a beautiful one indeed. Yeah. Maybe one day that um, it also means that uh, sex workers will have equal rights too. We can only hope. I would be out leading the cheers for that <laughs> as much as I possibly could, especially having done this show and meeting so many amazing women and other wonderful humans who are in the sex worker industry. And that is something you advocate for so much. Is there going to be or what is it going to take for a tide to turn where the MasterCards of the world won't be able to dictate everything that you all are, quote, allowed to do? Um, I wish I had an answer for that, but I, I can tell you what I'm going to be doing about it uh, is that I'm, I'm in the process now of um, impl implementing my next phase of my life, and inside the next ten years, I'm I want to I'm going to pick pick up lobbying. I'm probably going to transition out of you know a good portion of the work that I do into um, more political work. Really, what it's going to take is money. You know, like money money is the thing that um, that the the Mastercards of the world listen to, and sex workers are amassing wealth at an unprecedented rate. And they really can't, they can't not listen to us anymore. Uh, and the bigger this grows and the more wide, widely accepted it is, the, the more that they're going to have to just deal with us as human beings instead of the, you know, the dregs of society. Your power comes from, in some cases, your beauty, in some cases, your imagination. How much of it comes from your intelligence? Because when I first heard you speak, I went, oh, my Lord, that is one intelligent <laughs> human being there. I used to have a lot of ego around my own intelligence um, because, you know, like I was a Mensa kid, you know, I, I got accepted to MIT, you know, like all of those things. Um, and the older I've gotten, the more I don't think as much of its intelligence. I think a lot of my power comes from, from sheer force of will and an unwillingness to give up because there are a lot of smart people in the world and being smart doesn't necessarily mean that you are impacting your environment at all. You can sit at home and be plenty smart and make no change or do no good in the world or affect or, or you know, help no one. Um, I, I think it's more important to be kind than smart, um, but I think that uh, there are certain people who are just more designed to to lead a charge because they're just too stubborn to give up. And that's one of, I'm one of those people. Interesting question to ask a dominatrix. <laughs> Is the power of the will something that can be taught? Power of will. Um, I think that it can be taught to uh, to learn more about yourself and give yourself permission to be powerful. But I don't think you can teach someone to have more will. I think that you can teach them to be more comfortable with their own will. That makes sense. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like sexuality. You can't teach someone, um, to have a different sexuality than they are. Right. But you can help them to understand it and open them, open them up and like allow them to explore and to like, let go of their shame 
allow them to explore the, you know, the deep recesses of their sexuality. And I think Will is, um, you know, it's another, another side of that coin. Is kink an orientation? No, kink is an activity. Hmm. <laughs> um, I, I think that a power orientation, um, you know, at least your, like your, uh, authority dynamic, I, I, I have, always really hated the term um, power exchange because traditionally the term power has nothing to fucking do with like giving or, or giving authority or control in a scene, right? And so it's more like an authority command sort of exchange. What I really think is, is that you have a, a predisposition to wanting one type of dynamic or another or having an interest in one area or aspect of sexuality or another, but I don't think it's necessarily your orientation. Um, at least not in a sexual orientation way or a gender orientation way. That's an interesting and unique perspective on it, especially with the way I've gone through my kink life and my fetish life, because I was predisposed to what I like back when I was three years old and then into my puberty by simply watching the Avengers and Emma Peel and Batman. I mean, you're, and you're not alone. I, 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 I have, <laughs> I could give you 500 anecdotal stories that would match that exactly. Well, but that's not the same thing as a sexual orientation though. Like mm -hmm. um, having, having a fetish um, or, you know, not, that's, that's not the specifically correct word of saying fetish, but to have a kink, to have a kink is not the same thing as is your kink being an orientation, right? Um, you have certain, I actually wrote a thesis paper on this. You have certain certain kinks that um, that form, you know, in an early age, and you have lots of other kinks that form as you get older and in your exposure and your, your own exposure to sexuality, right? Your power orientation, like, like being dominant, submissive, you know, switchy, whatever, um, honestly probably has more to do with um, your, your relationship with yourself and the relationship that you have or the, the, your ideal kind of relationship or dynamic that you want to have with another person. So that's kind of a, a bit of a noodle breaker, a noodle, noodle baker too. There's also a lot of stuff that says that there's um, a relation to power dynamics and uh, attachment theory too. So, you know, um, that's not to say that like that, you know, if you have one kind of attachment or another that you're going to be dominant or submissive, but these things are more fluid than people give them credit for. Uh, they tend to be more, more relation to the person that you're interacting with and less about your individual perspective, right? When we come back on what women and other wonderful humans want, we're going to take a trip to the Wicked Eden and find <laughs> out about the new documentary coming out very soon. Back on the show in just a moment. Hello, I'm Jesse Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. When Corey and I first started this and we were talking to girls in strip clubs and stuff, trying to get them to come model for us. They looked at us like we were crazy. You do what? You want me to do what? And now it's just like, oh yeah, it's that bondage thing, it's cool. It really was not cool 
when I started this job. And I'm glad that it is now. And hopefully I've had some sort of positive influence on the world. I don't know. I just take smutty pictures of girls tied up and post them on the internet. Get to meet the man behind the camera for so many superheroine fantasies and other amazing bondage pictures. It's the legendary Jim Weathers of Bondage Cafe in our very first two-part interview, February 8th and 11th, on what women and other wonderful humans want. Welcome back to the show, joined by Castaway's top vote-getter for a person he thought I would never be able to get on the show. Castaway is our producer for Dating Kinky, and I said, I'll see <laughs> you and I'll make that bet. So I promised him that if I ever got you on the show, I would remind him that he told me that. <laughs> he yeah. actually just texted me and said, you're talking to her? I went, yes, I am. <laughs> well, you won the bet. That's all that matters. Big things coming up for you in the fact that there is a documentary that, as you mentioned, is not available streaming yet, but a very few people have them. Tell me all about Wicked Eden and how this came to be and how we will be able to see it. So um, Wicked Eden is the name of my dungeon, but A Wicked Eden is the name of the documentary. I stand um, corrected. No, no, it's okay. Um, it's uh, it's a little confusing for me too sometimes when I have to figure out which, which fucking account to tag. Um, so a number of years ago, I think we're going on four question mark. Um, I was approached by, um, I, I was approached by a Canadian filmmaker and this is not the first time that I've been approached to do documentaries or to do reality TV shows or any of those other things. And I always have an absolute fucking unequivocal no to say that these things because they, they treat us like circus animals. We're, we're there for the, um, you know, for the sensation and we are not there for the actual story to be real people. But um, this, um, you know, this producer, this, this woman producer, um, Nadine basically had this very impassioned perspective of what she wanted to do. And, um, and I did this, you know, Skype with caller there and like, I'm listening to, you know, to, uh, her and the director kind of go on about their idea, whatever. And I'm like, mm -hmm, okay, well, I'm not opposed to this. And then I did, I did a really, a really brave thing. Um, I didn't actually know it was honestly brave at the time, but I've now found out that it's really uncommon is I said, okay, I will do this documentary under one condition that I can veto any scene any at any time point blank and i will not sell my life rights those are my, my two uh my, my two conditions and they made me executive producer and gave me full scale over over anything because i said i will not take a chance that one of these scenes is taken out of context and you know we do an interview with with another sex worker or anyone else because i i went out on a limb to, to get some of my friends and colleagues and stuff to do interviews and i said I, I won't take a chance that that can hurt any of them let alone you know something that could hurt me and uh they said yes not even like not even like a, a blink you know um and so i later found that apparently that's really uncommon and uh you know like we went through a couple of years of filming it started out with a 
I used to give very prepackaged answers to questions. Um, I was always very guarded the way that, you know, you, you tend to be as a sex worker where giving up personal information tends to be a, a could be a potentially life-threatening thing. And uh, after the first or second filming trip, I started to relax and, and really trust, um, you know, our, our team. Uh, they too was an, an almost exclusively all-female team. Um, and we had our, our honorary, our sound guy was uh, obviously not, but was an honorary woman. Um, and there was something about feeling that I could be honest and I could be, you know, um, transparent that made it easier to tell a story. Now we're looking down the barrel of trying to figure out where um, uh, where streaming is going to go. You know, like I'm, 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 I cannot pretend that I know absolutely anything about this part of the uh, of the film world. Like I understand porn; that is my box. Like I understand distribution when it comes to that stuff. Um, but we just did the film festival run. We, you know, um, I think won some awards or something. I don't honestly don't remember. Um, and now is going to go into this, into streaming. We've gotten lots of amazing reviews. Everyone that has seen it has had rave things to say about it. Um, we did a private showing of it during my, my Hawaii retreat. I did a retreat for sex workers, um, uh, early this fall and like people in tears, like, I think, I think you just had, um, had my, my, my good friend lady Vi on the show, uh, last, like not too long ago. And, uh, she came to me and she's just crying. It was like, this is amazing. This is an amazing, amazing thing that you're doing. And I don't know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I think the hardest part is trying to get something that, that is about sex workers, um, in the mainstream enough that, um, you know, that like enough people get to see it. Because unfortunately, the world wants things like Hot Girls Wanted, where you know they can feel sorry for sex workers and not not the you know champion story like our like the, like a Wicked Eden is. But really, they're just gonna have to see it, you know. I guess that's uh, and and as soon as I have the in on how it can be seen and where, I will uh, I will let everybody know. And we will definitely publicize it from our <laughs> side as well. I appreciate that. You talked about the fact that the media has this one version of sex worker and sometimes it's even more sensationalized. Do you think that this particular film, because of the way you've done it through the film festivals and the approach that you take will allow people to sit back and go, this isn't what I expected. These are really amazing people that we need to support. That, that is a hundred percent of the reason why I did it. I, I, I hope for nothing more than that is, that is the only outcome I want. If only, you know, one person out of a hundred watches it and goes, oh, these, these, these women are, are, are real people, you know, with real jobs and I've, with real lives. And I was completely mistaken and it makes them you know, go, hmm, then it will be a job well done. And if it does more than that, you know, I can't wait. Um, I've already been approached to, to potentially do web series or to like to do it, do a docu-series. And I'm still kind of, you know, 
throwing the idea around. I think if I was going to do it, I don't want to be the, um, the subject anymore. I think if I was going to do it, I would do individual, um, episodes where I'm the one who's interviewing because a lot of sex workers won't talk to anybody else except other sex workers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, if we go that route, that maybe I'll be able to tell, tell more stories and get more stories out in front of, uh, in front of people. I'm curious if you didn't go into the direction that you did, do you think you might've been a mainstream personality with your poise and passion for the camera? I mean, I, I, I was a previously SAG card carrying, you know, actress. Um, <laughs> I was a, I was a stand-in for Sandra Bullock in a movie. Um, I can uh, see that. Yeah. I mean, much, much more so when I was younger, um, and you know, like I, I did a couple of new line cinema films when I was younger too. Um, I, like I have a, like I have a classic, a classic acting background. I, the other school I got a scholarship to was Ithaca for acting. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I probably would have, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't really jive with the idea of being a starving actor. So <laughs> I think at some point I, if I, I would have. I would have either, you know, seduced a Hollywood executive and made him sign over his entire, you know, company <laughs> to me or something along the way, but who knows, who knows? Honestly, though, if I hadn't felt end up in, in, um, in film, I would have become an assassin or a mercenary, hands down. Maybe a spy. I always wanted to be a spy. I'm so busy <laughs> laughing with glee and joy. It's hard to say thank you. But I want to say thank you so much for being with us on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. As I mentioned before the show, uh, in the introduction, you are one of the people I have wanted to have on since day one. Thank you. Not only because you are here in Ohio, but I have just absolutely been in awe of the person that you are, the intelligence that you show, the power that you are able to portray, and the absolute classiness that you do every single thing with. Thank You're you. a person after my own heart, and I just am not fanboying here because it is much admiration for the work that you put in as it is to the person that is you. And thank I you. really thank you for being on the show. Well, I, I'm honored. Thank you for having me. I am just blown away by the powerful presence of the goddess. And getting to meet her for this program is amongst my favorite and most anticipated moments. One day, maybe I'll get to make that stop up the road and meet this incredible human in person. Wouldn't that be an honor? And that will do it for this week. I'm John, proudly known as Hi There Catsuit, thanking you for being with us. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time, and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky done differently.